Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Yeah, good response. Hey, we're going to keep walking ourselves through the book of Habakkuk. There's so much in the book of Habakkuk. We're actually staying in chapter one today. We will be in chapter one as well next week because there's so much to talk about here. Uh, so last week, we used the book of Habakkuk to remind ourselves of the importance of laying out our hearts to God in openness and honesty that Habakkuk has shown us through a series of swings within his life, within the culture that he was immersed in, uh, that is an important quality. He, if you remember, it starts out, Habakkuk is kind of uh, lamenting to God, and he's lamenting with, to God because uh, he's been a part of a pagan and idolatrous generation amongst the Israelites that had turned their backs towards God. And as a prophet, Habakkuk would have been about declaring God's word and message and judgment on to those people in the southern kingdom of Judah. He would have been praying that God would revive them, that he would bring them back, only to watch those prayers be answered through an eight-year-old king named Josiah. Eight-year-old king Josiah has a a conversion, a dedication to his heart about the, at the age of 18 where he puts his heart and his mind in the direction of God and he begins to lead reforms amongst the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah that bring his people out of idolatry and into a relationship with God. There, there is a mass repentance that takes place in the land, almost like a revival. And then Habakkuk watch, which watches with his eyes as this young king is killed in battle, the pharaoh of Egypt, King Necho, kills him in battle, and then Habakkuk watches as all of those reforms that once had brought great hope and prosperity to the southern kingdom fall to the wayside. A line of successors that come after Jos Josiah just pull Israel, Judea, excuse me, right back into idols and paganism, worse off than before. And Habakkuk is lamenting about it. And this is what he says. We're going to remind ourselves of Habakkuk's lament here in chapter 1. 1 through 4, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Remember, this is the burden. Oracle means the burden, the burden that he saw. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry out for help, or will you not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so Habakkuk is absolutely taking issue to how God is going about his business, and he feels comfortable laying out his personal issues with God. And knowing that Habakkuk is a prophet, a man with a deep relationship with the Lord, we should take note of this example in our lives, of his willingness to share openly and honestly the struggles and the concerns and the doubts in his life to the Lord. And this example should move us towards a reality in our relationship with God that is real and authentic in a personal relationship with Jesus that is both honest and open that we don't pretend in our relationships with God, that we have no struggle, no anguish, no baggage, that we would lay our hearts open before him, that he could hear our cries and then through his spirit begin to move us through those things. And in doing so, it creates a depth within our relationship with Christ, a depth in our relationship with the divine. And so now today, we're gonna stop and take a look at how God is going to respond 
to Habakkuk in this lament. And Habakkuk is probably going to be more perplexed at the end of this response than he was in the beginning. So what seemingly has happened is Habakkuk has written a story in his heart and in his mind about a God that is cruel and unresponsive and distant. And while certainly his circumstances around him would lead him into that reality, Habakkuk is missing the full story here. There is a part of the equation that he doesn't have that makes his math off with God. He doesn't have the full picture. And so let's see how God responds to this lament here in Habakkuk 1. We'll read it together, starting in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwelling not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. And so God is responding to Habakkuk, who his core concern, his core question is, God, are you asleep at the wheel? Are you asleep at the wheel? And God emphatically responds, no. I am not asleep at the will. I am doing something within your day that you would not even believe if I told you. God is saying, look, even if I told you what I was going to do, you are not going to believe me because you're a human and what I'm doing and what I'm about to do is beyond your ability to understand it. And look, if God would have just said that, if he would have just said, I'm going to do work in your day, you're not going to believe it, Habakkuk would have been high-fiving people around the temple. Selfie sticks are out. They're going, somebody Pinterest that thing. Make some wall art of that thing that God's going to do a work in our day. We're not going to believe it. But that's not what God means by this. Context is important in Scripture. God is not doing something that is something to be acclaimed. What God is describing is not good for the kingdom of Judah. It will be for its destruction and its judgment. God is saying, look at the nations and see wonder and be astounded. And he's saying that because in this time period, there is great political turmoil. You've got the Assyrian Empire, which has already conquered the northern kingdom, Israel. You've got the Egyptians, and you've got the Babylonians, or some people, it's called the Chaldeans. Babylonians and Chaldeans can be the same thing. And so you've got these people who are all competing for control of the territory that surrounds the southern kingdom of Judah. The Assyrians are losing ground. The Babylonians are gaining it because there's a small tribe of people in southern Babylon called the Chaldeans who God describes as a bitter and hasty nation who are dreaded and feared because of their military power and their violence. And so Babylon is gaining power and God has chosen to use these people to run over Judah because their continued rebelliousness and unfaithfulness. And your history books will note that the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom in the year 587 BC. Now, that's not good for Habakkuk. 
That's not good news. That's not what he would want to hear. He would want to hear another response. Habakkuk's life is absolutely in danger. He knows it. But regardless of how he responds, God answers the way that he answers. And we can try to think of the how and the why and the what of that response, but that line of questioning and thought, I I think is frivolous because we don't know the heart and the mind of God. The reality is this, that God is so far ahead of us in our thoughts and decisions that we can't even fathom it. Like our God is a thousand moves in front of us and we don't realize it. And the judgment that he's going to produce here on Judah, Judah is going to bring about the coming of his Messiah, Christ. It's at a larger piece a smaller piece of a bigger story. So think about this just for a moment. Just for this story in Habakkuk in particular. Consider this. Every Christmas, you and I come together. We talk about a stable, a baby, and some wise men. Those wise men are called magi. Do you know where the magi come from? Babylon. They come from Babylon. And they're there because there was a Jew held in captivity around 500 B.C. named Daniel, who was a prophet that prophesied about the coming of a Messiah, the king of the world. And these wise men in that time of Daniel heard it, and they began to pass it down to their ancestors, to fellow magi that followed them. And then 500 years after the death of Daniel, 500 years before the birth of Christ, these This prophecy is passed down so that when Christ's birth happens, these magi know there's something going on. They said, I heard something from God, I saw something from God, and we came. And this has profound meaning for us. It absolutely confirms all that Jesus Christ will say about himself. You have an outside group of people that have no dog in the hunt. They do not care about what's going on in the Jewish land, but they show up to the birth of Christ because they heard about a king some 500 years ago and they waited and saw something from God and they came. That's profound. It absolutely proves the supernatural of Jesus Christ's birth. But it also means this. You have, a Babylon, you have Babylonians and you have Jews who are all bowing to Christ in the stable. And so this is a great reality for us because it means that Christ's birth was not just for a select Jewish nation. It was for the entire world. And all of that happens because the Babylonians take over Judah in 587 BC. All of it happens. And so listen, it is absolutely okay to be upset with God about how he's writing your story, how he's directing your story, but know that he is probably doing something that you cannot even possibly comprehend, that his actions and his plan might and will cause pain for your life. But there is a greater purpose in store, maybe for you, but maybe not. Maybe for the generations of believers that come behind you. And look, I can't tell you the how and the what of God's response to you. I I can just tell you that at the rock bottom foundation, we have to trust in God because he has proven himself to be good. Like listen, this week I sat down with a young man who was about ready to go in and have reconstructive knee surgery. I prayed over him before he went to surgery. He was just, he was bummed. Who wouldn't be bummed having knee surgery? Like he was bummed because summer was in essence being taken away from him. And that was his favorite part of his life. 
He loved summer. He loved everything that came with it. He loved to golf, ski, be on the boats. He loved to fish. And all of that, because of his knee surgery, was being taken away. He was absolutely bummed. He was disappointed and sad. And what I think Habakkuk and the example of Habakkuk and God bring to us and show us, and what I was able to communicate to this young man, was it's absolutely okay to lament that, to express that disappointment and sadness, but know at the end of the day that the God that we serve is doing something in our lives that we just can't understand, and it's not always for our short-term gain or our worldly satisfaction, but it's always for the good of his people. The reality for this young man will be that in 20 years, he might look back at this surgery and think, well, that was a moment in life that God really shifted my reality into something different. Because I think this, all of us, if we look back 20 years ago to those moments in our life that we were tough for us, that we went through, if we looked back 20 years ago, we would say, well, if I didn't go through that, then I would have never met that person, and I wouldn't have been in this relationship, and I wouldn't have been there, and I wouldn't, because I wasn't there, I wouldn't have had this, and I wouldn't be where I am today. And so we can look back and begin to connect the dots and see, okay, that's how God is doing that, this thing. And, and that was my advice for this young man, is that, look, you can't understand it today, but know that God is doing something that is beyond your comprehension. So yes, God responds to Habakkuk in a way that seems painful. It is painful, it may not be the way that we hoped God would have answered him, but it's absolutely true of who our God is. He does not live in the same time continuum or play by the scale of fairness that you and I play by. He doesn't. He just doesn't live there. So if we're just going to focus on breaking down God's response to Habakkuk, I think there's going to be significant parts of this that we're going to miss that are present within the interaction between God and Habakkuk that I think are simple in nature. There's just a simple truth that sometimes we overlook because we're either not looking for them or our broken hearts just won't allow ourselves to let them sink in. So what I want to do today for the rest of our time is just pull out some simple truths that we see present within this interaction between God and Habakkuk. And uh, here's, you know, probably going to be a shorter sermon today because I I just don't think I'm going to get through a lot of them today. And I would rather spend a time in depth talking about these truths. So nobody's going to complain about getting out a little sooner today. today. So uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that when you read this text, is don't read past that God hears Habakkuk and responds. Don't read past the fact that God hears Habakkuk and responds. He, he responds. And that is a simple truth that we miss. It's a simple truth that we miss. We don't get the depth of that. And I think some of us are saying, well, of course God responded to Habakkuk. I mean, he's Habakkuk. He's got a book named after him in the Bible. My name's Bob, and the last time I checked, there's no book of Bob in the Bible. I'm not even kind of a guy that God would want to talk to, but I think we're missing something here because there is a rhythm that is present within the pages of Scripture of a God who hears his people and responds. Countless times within the pages of our text, God hears his people and responds. We see it in the Israelites as they're fleeing from the Egyptians out of slavery. We see it in the King David. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Samson. We see it in the prophets. We see it in Paul. We see it in Peter. We see it in the rest of the disciples. There is a rhythm in which God hears his people and he responds. And I think that we can absolutely get confused that this word that God has given us is just a collection of stories. That it's just a collection of stories, but these stories are about the people 
that are our ancestors. These people in the Bible are there so you can understand how God interacts with his creation. They're not just Bible people. They're you and I, and God chose to interact with them in a way so you could understand who he was and who he is. And our God has shown himself to be a God who responds. Absolutely a God who responds. And listen, don't miss this, okay? Because he doesn't respond to you because you're awesome. He responds to us because he's awesome. He's awesome. God responds to us because he is awesome. God is intimately aware of who you are. He's intimately aware of who you are and what is going on in your life. It's one of his character attributes. He is omnipresent. Omnipresent means that he is everywhere all the time at once. And I, like, we don't know. That. At the same time that God is with one of his children and, and he's comforting them because they've lost a relative in their lives, he is, he is with a child of his that just got news that it's not cancer and is rejoicing. That is a character attribute of God that he's everywhere at once. And that is awe-inspiring. Absolutely awe-inspiring. Listen to the psalmist David. David writes this in the Psalms, in Psalm 8. This is what he says about the omnipresence of God. He's in all of it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And so David, David is absolutely looking up to the stars and he's looking at the expanse of the universe and he was saying that you would know me, that you would care for me, that you would listen to me, that you would be even aware of me. And it blows his mind. And it's such a simple truth that because I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking deeply about these things, we miss out on a real beautiful character attribute of our God. That the creator of all things is intimately aware of us. In Psalm 139, it goes on to say that he knows the number of days that you would live before you've even lived one of them. Luke reminds us that he knows the number of hairs on your head. He's just aware of you. And that is so profound. It's so incredible that if we would just allow ourselves to sit in that reality and truth, we would sit in awe and be inspired. And look, maybe you're a person that believes that God, yeah, I believe that God does respond, but I just think he answers my prayer with a lot of no's. That maybe he answers your prayer, your request with more no's than he does yes. That every time you talk to him, it feels like I don't get what I want. But I would contend to you today that God answers yes than more than he answers no. And look, I think there are probably a couple reasons that leads us into a reality where we believe that God says no 
more than he says yes. And so I want to talk about a couple of those things. The first thing that I will continue today is the fact that we pass quickly praises onto ourselves and give credit to others where it's not rightfully due. Um, for instance, uh, some of us in this room are detail-oriented people. Some of us in this room are not. I aren't a detail-oriented person, all right? My wife is, and that can lead to some interesting conversations around our house. Uh, things like, how is it possible that you know every statistic of every fantasy football player on your team, but yet you continue to walk over the dirty socks that I've been on the floor for the last three days? <laughs> the ever-present question of like, so what's the plan here? Which is always met with the response of, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. We're just a different reality. She's just got a different skill set. And I am absolutely thankful. I am a different and better person because of my wife's detail-oriented process. I'm just, I am. I'm, I'm thankful for who she is. But listen, if my praise stops with her, I've missed the boat. Because as great as my wife is, she was created with that kind of ability. And if my praises don't roll past her, to the very God that created her, then it is misdirected. It is misdirected. All of us in this room, whether you believe it or not, have been given skills and abilities and tools that were given to you by the Creator. Whether you believe it or not, and He's going to use them to impact the world. God will use all of those things to impact the world. He uses us as tools to move His plan forward, just like he did with the Chaldeans in bringing the destruction of the southern kingdom. God uses us as tools to impact others and even to answer prayers. And so what happens more often than not is, is we have desires of our hearts, things that we communicate to God, that God through appointed means, through people that he uses as tool, he answers. And instead of giving him the credit, we peg the credit onto something or somebody that doesn't deserve it. And so he does answer yes but we don't see it as yet. Yes, we just see it as the fact that we're lucky, that I'm fortunate. And so just to expand upon this, uh, many of you guys know that about eight years ago, uh, I had some complications with my heart. Uh, I had gone to a doctor because I had some issues with a, a, a regular heartbeat. My doctor referred to me to a heart specialist who referred to me to an electrophysiologist, which is just like, it's a John Hirely for my heart. It's an electrician for my heart. They looked at my heart. They made me wear a monitor for a month, day and night, which does not happen when you realize how uncomfortable and awkward that is. Okay? So I went back after a month to my doctor who did the initial screening. He said, hey, you're good. I don't see anything here. You're good to go. And there was a refreshing moment in that, but I wasn't convinced. And so I just poured out my heart to God. It's like, I just think that something's different here. I just... And so about a month later, I went back to the doctor who said, yeah, I see what you're saying. If you were my son, I'd send you to this guy. Dr. Raritan, he's at St. Vincent's. And so before I knew it, I was at St. Vincent's with Dr. Raritan, who did a ton of tests. And he came back and had an idea of what was going on. He, he told me that I, was, uh, that I had a, a disorder called heart conduction disease and that my heart and its electrical system would atrophy over time. And that may sound like a scary reality, but my reality is no different than, than you. Uh, I just have to wear a pacemaker for the rest of my life. That's just my reality. This last month, I went back for a checkup with, with Dr. Raritan, and he had told me that things had changed a little bit, 
that my original diagnosis was slightly different now. Where my heart, when, when I first was diagnosed, was beating most of the time. That The only times I needed my pacemaker was any time that I was over 150 beats a minute. So like if I was playing a sport or I was exercising, that's when I needed my pacemaker. My doctor said, look, you're 100% reliant on your pacemaker. Like your heart can't function without it. Um, and so that's my reality now. Meaning this, that without my pacemaker, my, my life is different. Uh, my reality is different. My doctor has told me that your existence would not be fun. Um, I can't speculate on whether I'd be alive or not, but I would tell you this, I wouldn't be in front of you today. And I probably wouldn't get the privilege to hold my little girl, Ellie, as well. And I am absolutely thankful for Dr. Raritan and St. Vincent's and this piece of metal with a battery in it in my chest. But I praise God for it all. Because ultimately, they were tools in his hands. They were tools in his hand to bring about his will in my life. And they are not to be praised, but rather the God who gave them to us is to be praised. You don't praise the tool, you praise the giver of the tools. And those tools, like pacemakers and MRIs and medicine and doctors, are common graces that all of mankind can enjoy. They are the goodness of God on this earth. They are grace-given items and graces to all mankind by a merciful God, despite the fact that we do not deserve that kind of technology. And we praise him for that, because it, but in the end, they're tools. As I said before, we don't praise the tool. We praise the giver of the tools, who used them as he saw fit. And so I think one of the reasons that we don't see God answering yes is that we're very quick to praise ourselves or ascribe praises to other people for the common graces that God allows in our lives and gives to us and how he works through those things. That's the first thing that I would contend to you. The second thing that I would contend to you is the fact that there is a reality that you and I, we just don't write down the desires of our hearts and our verbal prayers to God. Many of you people in this room, well, I, I, there may be some of you people in this room who have a prayer journal that write these things down, but I think for most of us, we don't bother with the time of writing down the desires of our hearts and the prayers that we have. And so because we don't do that, we don't know or are not aware of the types of prayers and the types of answer that God gives us. And so we become focused not on the prayers that he answered, but on the prayers that he didn't answer. And we, it's like a kid at Christmas in that scenario, that God would give us richly the desires of our hearts but we would only be concerned with the thing that we didn't get. It'd be like a kid who gets everything, but he didn't get that one video game that he wanted. And that's all he can think about. So I contend to you that God says yes a billion times more than you think he does. We're just slow to acknowledge that, hey, that was an answer to prayer. And so, again, this is just the first simple truth that we see present inside the text we have a God who responds, and it is a rhythm that we find within Scripture. They're not Bible people. They're you and I to know who the God of the universe is and how he interacts with his creation. He responds. And because we're not focusing on the right things, as far as God using his people as tools, as far as bringing out, uh, bringing blessing into our lives through common graces, and in because of our inability to track our hearts and what we're asking God for, we forget about this as a good attribute of our Father. 
that he is a God that responds, that we can lay open our hearts in all of our angst and all of our praises and all of our concerns and he will respond. But not always the way that we hope. And that's not always in the way that we hope, but he does. And we have to remind ourselves that our God is a thousand moves in front of us. He's a thousand thoughts in front of us. And so don't read this conversation between Habakkuk and God and miss that simple principle. Now next week, we're going to walk into a few more of these simple truths. Uh, We're going to walk into what happens when God says no. What is the reality of God when he says no? And what does that mean? And we're going to use the Israelites present in this story as an example. So join us next week. It's going to be a good week and, and, and bring a friend, okay? Let's pray. God, we just come before you today and uh, we just lift you up as a God that we can trust, a God that we know that is good. You've shown that in our lives on countless times. Lord, will you help us to remember that you as a good, great God respond to our needs, that it doesn't always come in the way that we see fit or the way that we would understand, but we would trust and realize that you are a God response. So God, help us to see the common graces in our lives that you give to us as blessings and not luck. Help us to praise you for the things in our lives that bring subsidence uh, to our situations. And God, most of all, let us praise you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray this through the name of Jesus Christ, who has done for us what we could not. Amen.